0: Mm, Wow, good morning. I'm very excited to say, well, I'm excited to say the next episode coming up uh, was simply to discuss uh, that book, Unlimited Mind, another chapter in there, and as it relates to practice and um, the Heart Sutra, impermanence, mindfulness, uh, but... The reason why I really enjoyed it is the author broke down the word samadhi and looked at the roots Uh, Sanskrit, Pali. I may have mentioned it yesterday that um, I never really thought of some of the things that I uh, chose to apply my time to during Corona. One of them was uh, to study the Pali language, pretty important, uh, not just because it was. What the original sayings of the Buddha was uh, written down uh, in, the language it was used, but arguably more importantly, uh, because of the meaning. I was just watching, listening to a podcast about the Chinese history. The host mentioned that he felt bad for anybody that had to get their knowledge from uh, translations or worse maybe a translation of a translation. And uh, being a 30-year Yijing reader the Book of Changes, uh, I have actually had to uh, read just about every translation there is to get really a cogent um, idea of, of course, not just the meaning, the cultural uh, references uh, and just the historical context, right? as well as just the common metaphors used uh, that transcends the culture itself. Right? Some of these things, like for example, when I mentioned uh, the hexagram uh, jen, uh, jen also means straightforwardness, but that's in the northern Chinese dialect, something that may not even be um, understood at this point, even within mainland China. Because keep in mind, uh, as, as late as the 40s, there were no minimum of uh, 200 plus, near 300 actually, uh, different ethnic uh, minorities in China itself. Now this predates um, Mao uh, putting his... Uh, well... This predates Mao changing what the Chinese felt was historically the Chinese empire. Things like Xinjiang region and Tibet, uh, none of which arguably were ever a part of China. Uh, They were, uh, what would you say, west of the Jade Gates. So, uh, you know, I mean, always a part of the Silk Route, but part of China. And if we want to talk about dynasties, was China really ever uh, united except for during the Yuan and the Mongolian? I mean, we commonly, I laugh, I was reading on the Wikipedia page and it was talking about uh, Chinese or 97 point something Han and what what have you. And I just laugh. I mean, you got your Haka people, you have, uh, uh, I mean, even the east coast of China itself. Um... Because of, I mean, Shanghai alone being an international city for a few hundred years, just in modern context, and you look at the Korean people being the originators of the Japanese people, not the original, right? The Jumon period and after, uh, they attribute the people that came to the the islands uh, as being maybe the originators of the. Korean people but this is where it gets kind of interesting right? same as the Mongolians it's absolutely hilarious to think that anybody uh, in proximity to the, uh, the Asian steppes would uh, be 97% Han Chinese when we all know the Mongolians uh, have, uh, have got their genes into just about everybody and this is even global at this point Almost everybody certainly in that area can trace um, themselves back to uh, to a khan. so why do I mention this uh, right I mention it because Sanskrit was known to possibly come down from the north not India itself right so for me I like the Pali language Because, I mean, the language was designed uh, to mark down the sayings of the Buddha. I mean, not unlike nearly every other tradition, you have a mixture of attributable sayings. And as I said this morning uh, in another uh, speech, a little lecture I gave, I was discussing how... um, well, first, Buddhism is made up of what we call the triple basket, the pataka, the basket. Uh, they like threes, right? As I said, the triple jewel. And that's part of what the podcast is going to be today. I'm going to talk about mantras, uh, one of the original mantras. Uh, and I'm going to talk about how Sanskrit and Pali have gotten confused. It's not not even strictly a modern, it's it's become confused just like right the source of Sanskrit, and, and uh, the influence of Buddhism and Taoism, uh, it's gotten confused, because here, one of the very first mantras of Buddhism was Buddha, right, so that's the Buddha, uh, the accusative form with the M, Buddham, And you have Shurnam, or is it Saranam? It is Saranam in Pali, uh, Sanskrit, the only thing they change is they put a little uh, a little uh, a diacritical mark on top of the S, which makes it a sh, so it becomes sharanam. But when you see it written, it's commonly written with an S and an H, which makes it a little easier for people who aren't familiar with Sanskrit or Pali pronunciation. But if you pronounce it as saranam, but you spell it as sh, and so the Gachami is the next line. I find it quite interesting because the, uh, the, the source or the root is gachati. Uh, and it's interesting when you look at that. Uh, and again, the confusion was the belief was that Pali flowed from Sanskrit and not that it was uh, the local language. No, of course, not all the same. What they did is they developed uh, kind of a dialect. A written dialect—that's what it was designed for. It was never meant as a spoken language. It was written as a um, kind of like a universal poly, because um, right? uh, they they spoke regional languages. Just imagine the size of India today, uh, and what it would be like when it might take you, you know, months to travel from one end of the country to the next. Like how language could differ from one end of the country to the other. So I, an attempt to find this universal language. But even today, I find it difficult outside of very specific uh, sources like Warner's Pali uh, Primer um, or a Pali English Dictionary. But when you go online, you'd think the internet, eh? It'd be all there. I go online and I find ample resources of, uh, for Sanskrit, right? Like for example when it comes to mindfulness, translated commonly as sati, in Pali and shmirti in Sanskrit. Not the same word at all, not from the same root. That's why I find it interesting when you look at some of these other words. Right? They can be a root of some of our English language, but again, this this arrogance or this um, ignorance so even today I find it hard to separate the Sanskrit at times from the Pali because even sometimes it seems the scholars have a difficult time to understand um, you know, the roots of some of these words. So once again I love going back to the Pali because most of the time it is a compound word and, and uh, these compound words tend to be greater uh, their whole... Tends to be greater than the sum of their parts. So, I think it's going to be a fascinating episode today because we're going to look at the root of many of the words uh, that we use. Um, I've mentioned this before that uh, Joe Rogan has actually chided uh, many of us for using these words when we can use an English word in its place. Well, this is what the podcast is about. Okay. Uh, just in the last week alone. See, I'm studying mindfulness, right? Sati, shmirti. Uh, the practice itself of awareness, of uh, discernment. Um, sati, which, uh, by the way, uh, doesn't mean mindfulness. It actually means remembering. But we'll get to that. That is in the podcast. It's quite interesting. Each one of these words means so much more than they be translate. Uh So, number one recently is uh, the translation of, uh, well, the English word of meditation. We come to take this to mean sitting, like in Zazen. But even Zazen itself is not strictly sitting. But we translate meditation. What do we translate it? Jnana? znana, wisdom, maybe not. Dhyana, or Brahmana, it's just there's a multiple of words that can be translated. But let's stick to dhyana. Yes, it's a Sanskrit word. Uh, It's a little bit easier because it's the most commonly used one. And I do believe it's the most commonly translated one. So dhyana actually means uh, training the mind. What are we training it to do? To be mindful, to remember, to understand uh, that awareness of the source of our ills and suffering, as well as, um, for many of us, um, oaths we've made to liberating all of sentient beings. just depends. But again, it flows back to that shraddha, shraddha that I mentioned. So shraddha, faith, commonly translated as faith, but that is a disservice because shraddha absolutely means both faith and commitment, and concerted effort. Kind of like what I translated from the Tao yesterday. Yes, you want to be passionless so that you're not carried away by your emotions or by your eyes, as the poem mentioned. But more importantly, you need, um, you need, you need effort, and action, intention, right? So it's, It's completing the task. It's completing the task correctly. It's having the right intention throughout that task. So that's why we talk about remembering. What are we remembering? And remembering that we must always be working towards this. This is why Krishna explained how important uh, karma yoga was as opposed to jnana yoga or just wisdom or knowledge yoga. You can sit and contemplate Right? Uh, you can achieve this same liberation, but it's walking amongst others that truly tests us. How often do you hear someone who says they are incapable of sitting or even achieving uh, a quieting or a stilling of the mind because of all the noise and the hubbub around them, or they're just unable to still their own thinking? Well, It's a shortcut to go and step away from all of these distractions and sit on your pillow. Or to fix one's mind on mantra. You may reduce your suffering and your distraction, but are you keeping to the goal? A goal of distracting the mind with discernment and awareness, being able to see the true nature of our distractions, of our delusions through to, you know, the true nature of reality, right? So here we are, (laughs) we're looking at language that has been designed uh, specifically to share. Share what? These truths of our existence, uh, of our dukkha, which uh, is just our dissatisfaction, our suffering at the hands of our own ego, our own delusions or desires, misplaced desires. But once again, instead of using language to translate, what does translate mean? It's not simply to change one word to another. It's to transport the meaning from one culture to another. Right? So, if you... Translate the words, the sounds. But you leave behind the meaning, the message. Huh, what would Mr. McLuhan say about that? Right, the audience. The audience is who you're trying to reach. The message and the meaning is what you're trying to deliver. So if you get distracted and fixated on a particular word, for example, meditation. And even in the face of this word no longer even having the same meaning as intended, and worse yet is now been uh, appropriated by uh, egos and uh, um, arguably uh, the exact delusion, uh, not delusion, I apologize, the, the sort of sex that we were warned to watch out for. When, when you have people telling you that you don't have to be a vegetarian, not because of the no harm uh, or of the asking of alms, but simply because, well, you don't need to do that. You don't have to think about the importance of ahimsa or no harm. Or you'll have people tell you that mindfulness is not where it's at. Right? You just need to sit and it will come. All this flows from our own ignorance, right? Again, we start to use ego and go, well, this is the word that we're going to use. You know, we start to allow our delusions uh, to distract us. I mean, we got to remember that sentient beings are numberless, as are the the entries to the Dharma of Nirvana. So what does that mean? That means there are no two identical paths for these sentient beings to to achieve liberation. So for the West um, to argue there's this meditation and it's this way of doing it and you must do this or another group arguing you can't or you don't or you shouldn't or they didn't or they won't or they will. The idea is sharing the message, which is, why I'm excited for the podcast, because we're going to look at um, the meaning and the message behind multiple languages. As I've said before, Pali, Tibetan, Mongolian, arguably many other languages were developed either wholly or in large part uh, With the goal to disseminate the Dharma, what does that mean? To teach people how simple it is to to stop uh, suffering, to stop being dissatisfied with our existence. And how do you do that? By simply being aware, being aware of what the source of our own suffering is. Us, right? You, You wanna, you wanna, the will to power, as Nietzsche would say. Or, um, you know, your, your reputation, right? I mean, in accounting, there used to be a premise, an idea called goodwill. Goodwill was considered an intangible on the balance sheet because, well, I mean, you really can't put a value um, to how your company's seen. You can certainly see it of value, but you can't place uh, a dollar value on it. So on the balance sheet, we would keep track of this. This was for investors and for clarity. Now the meaning and the message both was the company values humanity, the community, their workers and their customers, society, and they have a plan for the future. Right? Not something you see very often, because. I've spoken of this. Goodwill is only good will if you do it with the right intention. So you do it because it's the right thing to do. We're going to get to that as well. Right? Sama. Right? Sama, a Pali word meaning right or correct, just. It's what should be done. It's what provides the greatest utility in the end. Sama, pati. Right, So it's your intention, as I said before, if you go to a soup kitchen to hand out meals to the needy because you need a post on your social media or you need uh, some volunteer hours for your college entrance applications or you just want to pad your resume or you just want to uh, make yourself feel good. Are you not reinforcing that same ego you're trying to minimize. So that's why we say you need to do charity for charity's sake, sila. Sila is morality. So you can't have morality alone because you can be as moral a person as you'd like. But without charity, dana, you're just alone. Who are you helping? That's the idea that I mentioned in the very beginning. Our goal is to not just source liberation for ourselves, but to carry that practice. There's another word I found, and I'll mention that earlier. Uh, earlier. I'll mention that later. Pardon my dyslexia. Discovered another word that specifically talks about exactly this, Right? that to not only use shraddha, that faith, that commitment, that absolute um, certainty in the prescription and carry that into the world, um, it's someone who embodies the Dharma, right? Not someone who proclaims themselves to be a Buddhist and yet um, misses the point, right? So, what am I getting at here? I'm simply trying to state that over and over again, I see these complications being added to, God, an overly simple philosophy of self. I mean, no further than that. right? The, uh, the Atta in Pali, which is the soul or the self. Right? And we know that as commonly as anatta. Right? But if you look at the translation of anatta, it's not, it's not about no-self or not-self. Even as I've often translated, I like not-self because it gets the idea across a little bit better than the actual translation. Right? No soul or no ego. Now, what do they mean by those two translations? It's important. It's important because, as I've said before, the Atman is used both in Jain uh, and Vedic, pre-Hindu philosophy, and in the Buddhist philosophy. So you need to differentiate the difference between the Atman, which is the universal soul to to the Hindu, the Jains, uh, it's a little bit different, but I won't even go into that. But the Jains see it uh, similar, where they see a, a universal, um, uh, immutable soul. So the Buddhists don't see the Atman as a not-self, uh, not you know, no soul, the Anatta, I apologize. They put the two definitions in there because it is no soul to the Hindus, but we're not so concerned with that use of the word soul. We know it to mean what we consider to be this self, this aggregate of parts that everyone shares but we're so selfish that, hey, these are our parts, so this is me. But it's important in the Pali language uh, for them, considering this was designed to disseminate the Dharma of uh, Buddha. It's important for us to understand this is not ego. So this is why we're going to go through the marks of existence because it's important because you need to understand the three marks of existence. Impermanence, it's not ego, not self, and dukkha, dissatisfaction, suffering, um, you know, unhappiness. We need to understand those three to understand the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism uh, and actually Noble Truths that are shared across all of these belief systems, right? that there is a source to suffering. We're that source of suffering. That's why our existence, samsaric or otherwise, is why all of our endeavors result inevitably in a dissatisfying result, why happiness ends right? Um, and it results... In the reverse, usually, unhappiness. So it's important. Not only do we understand what the original meaning and message of these philosophies are, but it's also important that we understand when we get ego or simply language that begins to get in the way of the meaning and the message. I mean, who is going to stand up for this and say, it's enough. It's enough. We're... Distracted by these words when uh, the meaning and the message uh, is being lost because of the source of these same sufferings that we're trying to limit it's ego and self gratification and, and feeling that you understand this better than another and you know this guy doesn't get it and I'm everyone's guilty the same I'm guilty of it myself. So for me, it was amazing to see when I'm just simply um, studying Ganesh so I can explain how Ganesh is even um, a demigod or a deity in the Buddhist pantheon and why. And I see how these traditions are just almost identical, save for some different words. And then I'm trying to find kind of a universal definition of dependent origination. And that itself becomes difficult because not only does each sect of the Buddhists uh, have a different idea of how to explain it, it's either sometimes uh, more difficult to understand, like for example, the common, the common uh, quote is uh, this is that, and that is not this, and this is not that. And you know what I mean? It's a lot of negation, right? Um, explaining something uh, by explaining what it's not. I mean, it's difficult. As I said in yesterday's podcast, when you have the human mind that looks for order and chaos, and when the world is chaos, that's literally what we're trying to teach, right? Because of our own, uh, it's either our own delusions or our own physical limitations, we don't perceive reality as it is. And all this requires to be... uh, eventually eliminated, but at minimum reduced, is just acknowledging it, accepting it, and believing it to be true. And if you want to, understand that the liberation will flow from it. That's that sharada, that faith with commitment, and uh, yeah, yeah. See, that's why it's important when we translate words like meditation. We don't simply say, well, it's sitting, or it's this, or it's that. It's important that we translate the meaning and we share the message. Same as Shraddha. We can't simply say it is um, faith, because it's more than faith and was intended to mean much more than faith. And if we strip it of its meaning, we lose the message. Thus, again, it's not, uh, well, the reason why I mention it is, uh, as I said, I was listening to the Chinese podcast and it struck me that absolutely um, having to read uh, the Chinese philosophers uh, through somebody else's translations, and I'm lucky now that I have multiple translations of most of the works, but can we do that with, say, for example, the Christian Bible? Can we go back and read it in its original Aramaic or, or like which version of the Greek uh, Bible translation are we going to go back to, so... I just find it um, find it a little peculiar that since we have arguably um, a source closer to the originator, right? We have uh, the Buddha's words that arguably were documented within either his lifetime or within a hundred years of his lifetime. Very few other, um, very few other, Practices that can can say the same, right? Sure, there's commentaries that uh, that of course are much older. There are sutras that are attributed, uh, but of course we know with the hindsight of history that uh, they're actually a product of uh, disciples much much later. And uh, does that change how we see things, right? So for me, I have to wonder, because I'm going back here and I'm seeing just about every word. I mean, it started for, for me when I realized uh, dukkha is, is commonly translated as suffering and just suffering. I mean, just like shraddha, you're doing a disservice if you translate it to one word and you don't give... Uh, the True Meanings. I mean, I recommend everybody to get themselves uh, a copy of A.K. Warner's Polly um, uh, Lessons. I think it's the Polly Workbook or the Polly Primer. Pardon my memory, it's terrible. I mean, I was just reading it this morning, but I still can't remember. I recommend everyone get it, because you'll see. Uh, what was the word I was looking at? Well, the Gachami, right? One of the oldest mantras, right? I go to the Buddha for refuge, right? But if you look at the root of some of these words, right? Shurnam, saranam, right? Sara, Saran.